This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The international press might be gone, but the crisis in Haiti is still raging. After a devastating earthquake and a presidential assassination, what do the people of Haiti need to build a more certain future? So we're asking people to donate to individual groups in Haiti that are local and already on the ground and who know what Haitians need and know how to get what they need to them. The Way Forward for Haiti, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The island nation of Haiti is just beginning to catch its breath after a massive August earthquake. And that catastrophe struck just a few weeks after the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse, which left the government in a state of chaos. While Haiti could use international aid in its recovery— the country has suffered from a history of colonial oppression and interference that leaves its citizens wary of efforts to help, something that could complicate efforts to rebuild Haiti's physical and political infrastructure. Joining us to talk about it this morning is Marlena Doubt. She's a professor of African-American and African studies at the University of Virginia. She specializes in Caribbean studies and is the author of Tropics of Haiti, Race and the Literary History of the Haitian Revolution in the Atlantic World. And Professor Marlena Doubt, joins us now. Welcome to A Word. Thank you so much for having me. We're now a couple of weeks after the earthquake. What was the scope of the damage in Haiti? And what do we know about where the recovery stands now? I think a lot of Americans, again, we, we it's not just that we have short attention spans. We have enough crises in this country that a lot of people didn't pay a lot of attention as to how bad things were in Haiti. Yes. Um, so the earthquake hit the southern peninsula of Haiti. Um, its epicenter was near the Haitian city of Lekai. And um, if you were to look at a map of Haiti, you'd see that the southern peninsula kind of extends out pretty far um, into the Atlantic. And so it makes getting to the furthest reaches of the peninsula pretty difficult given the status of roads. Unfortunately, also a tropical storm hit the island only a few days afterwards, complicating both the 
the relief and um, disaster recovery effort and the ability to kind of find people who were still trapped under the rubble. One thing that, you know, was a little bit more fortunate than last uh, earthquake in 2010 was that this one hit at about 8.29 a.m. So there weren't a lot of people kind of out and about. But at the same time, being inside wasn't necessarily the safest place uh, to be either because of the, the way that buildings are constructed. In our last episode, we heard from an environmental leader about disaster capitalism. That's how, in the aftermath of natural disasters, millions and sometimes billions of dollars in aid get distributed, but most of it never goes to the people who actually need it. Have we seen disaster capitalism play out in Haiti after this most recent tragedy and and earthquake? Disaster capitalism has been a part of Haitian history for a really long time. Um, I think it most kind of visibly came into the frame in 2010 when Haiti suffered a 7.0 magnitude earthquake in the capital of Port-au-Prince. This is a moment when we saw millions, if not billions of dollars of aid pour into the country, supposedly through various aid groups. The most famous example of aid money that was donated for the relief and recovery effort in Haiti but never reached Haitians is the Red Cross, the NPR ProPublica report, which is now sort of infamous, that that half a, mil- half a billion dollars, excuse me, that was supposed to go towards building houses. We saw six houses built. The rest of the money was either funneled into their other projects because they weren't involved in development. They are disaster relief. So they gave tents and t-shirts, but they weren't really able to continue with the effort in the years following when reconstruction needed to happen. And so this is the situation and the scenario that we would definitely like to avoid this time around. And so we're asking people to donate to individual groups in Haiti that are local and already on the ground and who know what Haitians need and know how to get what they need to them. I'm an American and I live in, you know, central Illinois. I live outside of Dallas. I'm living in Riverside, California. How would I go about finding the local groups? Because e- even people who are passionate about these issues and like, hey, I've got $500 to donate. I've got $100 to donate. I've got $50 to donate. How do they know the proper ways to send their money to actually help people on the ground in Haiti as opposed to having it funneled into, you know, some CFO's pockets? That's a great question. Uh, I would direct people to one website they can use to find information, which is FOCAL. This is an aid organization that's longstanding. It's Haitian-based. They've been in the country for a very long time. They are Haitian-run and work with Haitians. And on their webpage, they can also they also direct you to places in the Southern Peninsula, particularly that could use help and assistance at this moment. But I would say beyond that, and I think this is sort of gets at the more difficult problem, a sort of more theoretical problem that underlies the question, which is that, you know, Haitians for a lot of people are abstract people who live over there. And so that because they don't necessarily know a lot of Haitians, they don't have people they can reach out to to say, who are some people who I can individually help? Because in the moments directly following the earthquake, the best way it turns out to help and get money to Haitians was to send it to them individually, to send people that you knew money who could then distribute things like water and food, could purchase things there. 
Um, and so this is, I think, what compounds the, the tragedy is that we don't want to be giving our money to these huge organizations. But as you mentioned, most people in the United States don't necessarily have a contact in Haiti. They don't know who they should reach out to and who they should find. Um, and so I would say some churches, Haitian churches in Miami and New York could also be other um, or in your communities, because there are Haitian communities in Chicago and Boston, for example, um, and to a lesser extent in places like Houston and Los Angeles. And so reaching out to some of those churches uh, that are Haitian congregations and finding out you know, what they suggest as well. We're going to take a short break and we come back more on the path forward for Haiti. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered A Word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Haiti's crisis and its future with Professor Marlena Doubt. Dr. Doubt, Haiti's president was assassinated a month before the earthquake struck. So who's actually managing this crisis right now? Like, who's running the country? Well, um, in a sort of de facto way, the president of Haiti um, is the man who Jovenel Moise had designated to become Haiti's prime minister a few days before the assassination. So his name is Ariel Henry, and he was sort of, I guess, assumed by the international community to be Haiti's rightful leader in this moment, in the moments and days and weeks actually following the assassination, that wasn't as clear as it is now. People seem to have accepted that, okay, this is the person who is going to at first lead the effort also to find out who was behind the assassination. And one of the most unfortunate things about this earthquake, including the loss of life, over 2,000 Haitians are reported to be dead, have died in the earthquake, is that now the investigation into Jovenel Moise's death is really halted at multiple levels uh, for because of these intersecting crises. And so there is a very real sense of who is leading the country, who's going to lead the relief effort. And Ariel Henry is now saying all the aid funds are going to be channeled through his office, that we're not going to make the mistakes of the past. But the Haitian people, this isn't necessarily comforting to them because he's not a person they chose. He's not a man who was elected by them. And they had previous problems with their prior presidents and the aid funds as well. So the idea that he's going to control it all or make sure it gets to the right places, there isn't a whole lot of confidence in that at the moment. So at one point after the assassination, you had some Haitian officials that were like asking for America to send military aid. That didn't happen. But then there were Haitians outside the government who wanted the U.S. and some don't want the U.S. Tell us a bit about how the, the average Haitian person on the street feels 
about the United States involvement or what the United States might be able to do to help find out who assassinated the previous president? This is a difficult question because undoubtedly, especially in this moment after the 7.2 magnitude earthquake that Haiti just experienced on August 14th, that actually Haitians need assistance aid. They need medical care. They need goods. They need things for everyday subsistence like water. It is also true that the Haitian populace, if you ask sort of ordinary everyday Haitians, are very wary of what looks like assistance because a lot of assistance is actually help that harms. Um, and they, they remember that. The memory of the 2010 earthquake was so strong that, you know, friends in Port-au-Prince were saying, we're sleeping outside. We're too scared to go back inside because even though the epicenter of the earthquake wasn't in Port-au-Prince, they still felt it. In fact, there are reports that the earthquake was felt all the way in Jamaica. And so then when you compound this with this intersecting crisis, if you will, of the assassination um, of the presidents and the low confidence that Haitians have in the ability for the government to find out, the Haitian government to find out who really did this and their will to do so because we've seen people go missing and go into hiding and also be killed for their role in trying to pursue justice for this. So the reason why I say it's a hard question is that many Haitians uh, on the ground in Haiti do not want another military occupation. They do not want boots on the ground, quote unquote, in Haiti. But at the same time, they also do not want the Haitian government as it stands to be the only ones who can pronounce and say what happens next because they, there's not a lot of trust. And so civil society organizations are calling for various meetings of factions and they want to be the ones to direct the way forward, not the UN, definitely not NGOs. Haiti was dubbed the land of 10,000 NGOs in the 90s and early 2000s and especially after the 2010 earthquake. Haitians who are forming parts of different civil society organizations, professors and lawyers and doctors want to be the ones to say, what happens next? Give us some insight on this, because I, I think that's that's really fascinating. You know, hey, in the United States, we know we've got, you know, Republicans are Democrats, our conservatives are liberals. Most Americans don't really understand the internal issues that were going on in, in Haiti. So who are the major power players? I mean, who who stood to gain from President Moise being killed? And, and how are those different kinds of groups battling now? Because I, I don't think most Americans even know who the stakeholders are in Haiti, even if they are aware of the fact that we aren't necessarily trusted as an objective outside assistance. There are lots of different political parties um, in Haiti. But President Moise's political party obviously sought to retain control of the government, but they had also been charged with funding, if not directly sending gang members into various communities in Haiti to engage in violence against the Haitian people who were protesting against the government since about 2018 formally, but really since the origins of Moise's presidency. And one of the things they were protesting is the Petro-Caribe funds that evidently appear to have disappeared or been misappropriated. And so Petro-Caribe was a Venezuelan oil program that allowed the Haitian government to purchase oil to sell to the Haitian people at discounted price, but that discount was a loan. And the discount the Haitian government received was supposed to go into all kinds of projects, rebuilding the Haitian National Palace, things like soccer fields, all kinds of things that would stabilize the government, but also make everyday life for Haitians better. And 
those projects, despite the fact that the government said, oh, they're well underway, when investigations were undertaken by the Senate, those projects, many of them hadn't even been started. And so the question started surfacing on social media and elsewhere, Kutkub Petrokaribea, which means where is the Petrokaribe money? This occasioned massive protests in Haiti from multiple quarters. And in the months leading up to really over a year, if not more, uh, before Moise's assassination, Gang violence had increased to such an extent. Uh, most Haitians were on lockdown far before COVID. They called it pays look. The entire country had been brought to a standstill. People couldn't go to school. They were afraid to go to the supermarket. Kidnappings increased. And there was a question of who is behind all of this different gang violence? Who's funding it? And a lot of people pointed the finger at Moise's ruling party. We're going to take a short break. We come back. More on Haiti's future. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Haiti and the politics of intervention with Professor Marlena Doubt. Dr. Doubt, so this is this is really interesting to me because, again, I think your, your average American may know that the United States has a very problematic relationship with Haiti, but it's not just the United States, right? There are other governments that have attempted to help the country from time to time. And those efforts don't necessarily lead to positive results. Can you give some other examples of maybe United Nations or, or other countries around the world who supposedly came in to assist Haiti, but nevertheless, it didn't end up helping a lot? Oh, goodness. Well, I think the most famous example of this must be the United Nations or most famous recent example, I should say, because Haiti also was occupied by the United States from 1915 to 1934, supposedly to help them after the assassination of a different president, President Guillaume-Vibrensam. The United States stayed for 19 long years, making it the second longest occupation after Afghanistan recently. But in 2004, a UN mission came to Haiti, and this was to, supposedly to stabilize 
the Haitian government after the coup d'etat that had been led against Jean-Bertrand Aristide's second presidency. There was an earlier coup d'etat that had occasioned a different U.S. occupation in 1994 under the Clintons um, or under Bill Clinton's presidency. But this time, the United Nations came and they were still there in 2010 when the earthquake happened. So they ended up sending more troops um, to quote unquote help Haiti. Some of these troops came from Nepal and because they were also from a country that was experiencing poverty and that was experiencing infrastructure problems, they brought a cholera epidemic with them to the country. This cholera epidemic resulted from UN practices. So yes, it was brought by the Nepalese soldiers, but the UN did not set up proper practices for waste disposal, sewage disposal, which was being dumped into the rivers, which is where Haitians do their washing, which of, of their produce as well as their clothing, etc. And so this occasioned a cholera outbreak. Cholera had never existed in Haiti before, and 10,000 Haitians died. Hundreds of thousands more became ill. And because medical infrastructure is not great, there were people who have long-standing problems because of this epidemic brought, again, by UN soldiers because the UN infrastructure was not put into place to prevent this from happening. You know, it's also a story uh, I just reread in the New York Times talking about the fact that UN peacekeepers uh, back in 2019 left hundreds and hundreds of illegitimate children in Haiti, and that there was sexual exploitation of women and young girls in crisis, and no one was held accountable. That, that, that soldiers came in who were ostensibly supposed to be helping to rebuild the country were actually abusing young girls and, and occasionally young boys. I, I mean, how do the Haitians and how does the Haitian government respond to that? I mean, did they go after the UN? Did they demand that the UN, you know, pay for these, these so many children who were born sort of out of wedlock and the soldiers just left town? Or is this just something an additional burden that the people have to deal with. There were definitely demands for accountability for the United Nations coming from inside and outside Haiti. But at the time when the when the demands were first being made, when when the cholera epidemic was first definitively traced to the UN uh, peacekeeping quote unquote mission, the 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 first question was, well, who has standing to bring charges against the United Nations, and in what court of law would this would these cases be heard? So that was a difficult thing. Eventually, the UN was forced to admit that they are that there was wrongdoing, but there has still not been restitution on the question of the peacekeepers and the children they founded or they they fathered. So there there are lawsuits. There are lawsuits ongoing, and in fact, just this week, one lawsuit was reached that a woman is now to receive. I think it's about three thousand dollars per month from a particular UN peacekeeper, and this is a landmark decision because people are saying. This is, as you mentioned, one of dozens of similar cases, and Haitians are standing up and saying, no, we're not, you can't just come here and do whatever you want, because this is actually contrary to UN regulations for peacekeepers to be engaged in these kind of relations because of the inherent, as the manual says, power dynamics involved. Looking to the future, you'll have an investigation or attempted investigations into who assassinated the previous president. What's the outlook for President Henri? Will he be judged based on the crises that he inherited or will he be judged on the future that he can present? Because as of right now, dealing with these dual crises of government legitimacy and actual disaster, I don't see how any leader, certainly one who wasn't popularly elected, will be able to manage the country effectively. 
I think it's going to be the path forward for him is going to be very difficult. So he is a neurosurgeon. Um, that's his trade. And I think, you know, he is seeking to paint himself because of that, perhaps as outside of um, these political spheres of influence that have dominated the country. But the other related problem is that, you know, the Haitian elite, people moneyed, landed elite in Haiti are also not trusted precisely because they are the ones who have stood to benefit from UN presence, from US presence. And that was the sector that was loudest asking for UN and US assistance in the form of kind of troops and boots on the ground um, in Haiti. And so we see that the elite and the Haitian people are still diametrically opposed. And as long as Ariel Henry is associated with Moise's ruling party and with this Haitian elite, I think the path forward for him will become difficult. But the elections that are supposed to happen in the fall, that, that was when they originally scheduled, this is imperiled. This is imperiled by um, not only the investigation, which was already putting those elections in peril, but once again, the earthquake and the tropical storm, which compounded matters. I, I can't believe we, we've managed to have this entire conversation and, and haven't talked about COVID. Uh, so I want to make sure that I at least, at least hit you with, with one COVID question. One of the things that we're looking at, obviously, in the United States of America is with the end of the eviction moratorium and with hurricane season, you have hundreds of thousands of Americans who are going to be displaced, which, of course, makes it more difficult to track and trace, which, of course, increases the likelihood of COVID spreading. How have this sort of combination of disasters, hurricane season, an earthquake, the end of a presidency that was supposedly managing these issues. How is Haiti managing COVID right now? And of all the resources that they may be asking from the United States, are vaccines on the way? Because I know that's something that a lot of countries in the Caribbean and the third world often don't have access to. That's a great question. So Haiti just started to be able to vaccinate its citizens, if you can believe that just started at either the end of July or the beginning of August to receive the first doses. This is extraordinary. Up until that point, Haiti had not seen a sharp rise in deaths from COVID. I cannot say that they didn't have a lot of cases because testing wasn't robust. But one thing we do know is because we would notice if the death rate had started to increase, right? Uh, one thing we do know is that there was not a great rate of death or and or hospitalization. But we've seen things start to change a little bit with the Delta variant and the fact that on the other side of the island, which is, of course, the Dominican Republic, which occupies the eastern two-thirds, they actually did see huge COVID surges um, in the beginning and throughout the pandemic and rise in hospitalization and a high death rate. And so we know that Haiti is not you know, immune somehow to COVID, that there most likely is a, a high population of people uh, with COVID who are, have not been tested. And so what we're hoping for now is that now that vaccines have arrived, is that those programs will continue and that the majority of Haitians will be able to get the COVID vaccine that, you know, President Moise just really dropped the ball on that. He really, really and truly did. And this was another thing that was brought up to use against him during his presidency was that he was not taking seriously enough, that he was using the low death rate and seemingly no low infection rate to basically engage in inaction against fighting the pandemic. Marlena Dow is a professor of African-American and African studies at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for joining us on A Word today. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a word for this week. 
The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel and Jasmine Ellis. Asha Salusha is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.